Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that indeed this morning you would speak to us, that you would speak and that our hearts would be receptive, that our minds would truly be renewed as we just sung together this song. As we want to hear from you, from your word, we want to praise you through our songs that we sing today. Be honored and glorified together, we pray that we as a body of Christ this morning would be knit closer together. We would be united as one body, not just Maranatha, but across the globe, uh, gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ. So be honored, be glorified in all that we do this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Welcome this morning, and I invite you to greet those standing around you before you have a seat. Someday we might have to have just like a 20-minute long greeting time at the start. Just give you guys a chance. Yeah, I heard an amen. Yeah, there, yes. Well, welcome. I'm Pastor Tony. I get to work with the youth here at Maranatha. We are glad that you're with us this morning. As a reminder, we have little yellow sheets. If you are new or visiting with us and you don't mind filling that out, you can drop it in the offering box right between the doors on the way out so we can connect with you and get you connected with the church as well. Uh, we have a few announcements this morning. National Day of Prayer is this week, and uh, that is, uh, you're going to have two options. If you are more in the barren area or have, have time in the middle of the day where you want to jump in on that, noon to 1 p.m. at First Baptist Church in Barron, and then there's another option at 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. at World Harvest Church here in Rice Lake. So that's this Thursday, a National Day of Prayer, a time where churches, Christians around the, the community come together and lift up the needs of our local community as well as our state and our country and our world. Uh, so join us with that uh, for that if you can. We have our Maranatha Spring Cleanup uh, happening, and that's starting officially next Saturday, this coming Saturday, May 6th, um, but doing it a little differently this year where it's not just a one-day event. If Saturday doesn't work for you, you can still sign up. Uh, we would still be glad to have your help and come when you can, um, particularly through that next week. So May 6th through uh, Friday, May 12th is kind of the, the main time frame we're looking for people to come. So whenever your schedule allows, but you can sign up at the desk in the lobby out there. There's a bunch of uh, projects that are listed, and you can uh, select which ones would be a good fit for you or your family. You can come. Uh, yesterday I was here for an event, and I peeked out, and I saw some, some uh, suspicious individuals out cleaning up our yard. So thanks to the Schiltz for that. Um, there's other things that have been uh, happening around already, so a little bit of pre-cleanup cleanup. So sign up for that if you can. A lot of projects. We are blessed with a huge facility, and uh, we can use help getting it uh, freshened up after a long, hard winter. Next Sunday, May 7th, we have uh, this event that we've been talking about for a few weeks or a few months maybe even already, but uh, Spiritual Advance Directive. So uh, not maybe the most fun event you want to think about, but... Um, the end of our life will come for each of us, and it is a blessing to your family to have a plan in place for that. So if you want help with that, uh, as uh, pastors, Pastor Cody and I, and 
I'm not sure who else might be helping with that, but for the two of us, for sure, we'll be helping guide you through a process of just asking some questions to think through some things that you might want to be as a part of your your uh, funeral service, um, you know, songs that you favorite songs that you want, or just things so that when that time comes, your family will know, and so they don't have to be arguing and fighting and and uh, trying to figure out all of that while they're they're grieving. So if you want to sign up for that, um, sign up today in the at the welcome desk. That's at noon next Sunday in the fellowship hall, and lunch will be provided. A few weeks ago, we had our youth retreat, our spring retreat, out at Arrowhead Bible Camp. We do, did that together with a few other churches, and uh, we had a great time out there. The speaker was Johnny P. from the FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and the theme was on being whole in Christ, and he kind of asked this question, are you just filling your life with things, or are you finding true fulfillment in Christ? And so that was kind of the, one of the big questions he was wrestling through and helping us think through. Um, huge thanks to the worship team that came out on uh, Friday night. We had a, a group that came out and led like an hour of worship and prayer time for us as we kicked off that event out at Arrowhead. Um, so just pray for the youth. Every time we do an event, my heart and, and, and prayer is that, you know, it wouldn't just be an event that happens and then they go on with life, but it would truly impact them in a lasting way. And so... We appreciate your prayers for that, for everyone who was involved in that event. And then our final announcement is our celebration. So last week we uh, celebrated um, one family that were are some of our newer members, and we have another family to welcome and celebrate. We've officially welcomed them a while back, but we have their answers to some of the questions that I had asked before. So we have uh, Maurice, uh, Gina, and Adriana Peterson, and we're welcoming them as uh, Maurice and Gina as official members. Uh, they've been attending Maranatha since August 21st. Um, Gina works outside the home as a registered uh, dental hygienist, and Maurice is a stay-at-home father that dairy and crop farms, and so plenty busy there, right? Um, Gina likes to craft, bake, boat, and be with family and friends, enjoying good food or good conversation, and Maurice enjoys watching movies, kayaking, driving tractor, and a new interest as of last year was rock climbing, so... Pastor Cody took the, them out rock climbing, and uh, that's a new, a new hobby that he enjoys. So maybe we'll get in on that again this summer. Um, in terms of a dream vacation, uh, Gina said a dream vacation would be a hot air balloon ride over the Serengeti during migration. So again, we're going to pass another extra offering plate like last week to get these uh, families on their trip. Maurice, he said it's hard to pick uh, between Israel, Poland, and Scotland. Those are a few places he'd love to visit. And then when I asked about favorite uh, scripture or Bible verses, uh, Gina said uh, favorite Bible stories would be the creation account and also the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And Maurice's favorite is the creation account as well, but then also the story in Daniel 3 where some young men get thrown into a fiery furnace for their faithfulness to God. And when I asked a question about, you know, are you, have you gotten plugged in somewhere using your gifts to, to bless the church or are there areas where you're maybe interested in getting plugged in? And um, Gina said that she's been a leader in the kindergarten group with Awana and Maurice has some, some interest in possibly helping with groundskeeping. If you can, I added the second part in, but if you can figure out how to get those cows to milk themselves, he would love to maybe help out a little more with uh, things around here. But, uh, and then the last... Uh, question they ask is just, you know, something unique, fun, interesting about you as we are trying to help people get to know um, each other in the body of Christ here at Maranatha. And something unique about Gina is that she seems to know lyrics to many songs and movies, and you may find her quoting them at random. 
And Maurice uh, enjoys doing impressions of movie characters, uh, such as Mickey Mouse, Bane, and Yogi Bear. So I think it looks like we may have found our entertainment for next year's Valentine's event. So Justin, mark that one down, okay? And we're glad to have all of our Maranatha families as part of it, but especially those who are officially going through that process. And, we, and many people who go through the membership process, they've already been a part of our church family. We've considered them family for a long time. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, it's wonderful to welcome them in officially. And, it, and following um, one of the other times that we announced this, I had some people come up and, and say, hey, when's the next membership class? So if you are interested in going through that process, even just to kind of check out and learn more officially about our theology, what we hold to as a church, um, just our history as a church, is there's no commitment to become a member uh, by going to the membership class. But uh, if you are interested, let us know. We don't have a date scheduled yet, but uh, when we have kind of a core group um, interested in that, then we'll schedule a time where we'll do another membership class. And you can talk to one of the pastors or contact Carmen in the office for that. And I would like to welcome uh, Pastor Cody. I don't know if you've met him before, but he's been busy the last few weeks, and so we welcome him back up into the pulpit. Thank you, Pastor Cody. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> good morning. It's good to be here, and yeah, thank you for all of your prayers. Even though I've been here the last three Sundays, I feel kind of like, wow, I've cried every Sunday. Hopefully today we don't cry, but if that's a part of the service, that's okay, right? And thank you, Pastor Tony and Pastor Aaron, for helping with many of the things. We have been, as you know, very busy with all that's been going on in our community, and just so much has been happening, and we've had some some stuff with law enforcement, of course, and even we've had some joyful things. And I'll be showing pictures the next couple of weeks as we celebrate. We had our parking lot full of 50 different police vehicles, squads, deputies. You know, we had, our, we had 50 dogs here, canine units. They had some training here this weekend, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. That was a pretty, pretty impressive thing. So it's good to be here, and I'm excited today to not only just get back in the pulpit and preach, because I love doing this, but this is a special topic that we've been talking about for a bit as we're at the end of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. So even get your Bibles ready, go to Mark 16. We are at the last section here, and we are talking about one of my favorite topics in the world, and that is this right here. The Word of God. And I encourage you, I know some of you don't bring your Bibles, you got on your phone, you're all fancy and techy, and I've got a couple Bible apps, I, I don't know how to really use them, and I can find them, but I encourage you on Sundays, bring your actual Bible. It's good to have this Bible, it's good to have it, and that's fine if you have just the one that you read through on your electronic device, but there's something important about the Bible. Let me, let, before I begin here, let me even tell you something very weird about Pastor Cody. So kids, get ready for this. When I was a little boy, my dad and I, we would go to the stores, to the bookstores, and we, we have one in town here. We have a Christian bookstore, but I, we would go to any bookstore. This is what we would do. This is weird, but we would go to the Bible section and we would go to the new Bible. They didn't have used Bibles there. We would pull out the Bibles, and I love the gilded edges here, you know, that shiny part. And we would actually, this is how weird I am, we would pull them out, and I would go, oh, that smells so, anybody else do that? You're laughing? Okay, so there are a few of you. I would actually pull out new Bibles and sniff them. 
and go, this smells so good. They just, you know, new books have a unique smell, but maybe it was because of the leather and the pages. The new Bibles, we go, oh, that smells so good. In fact, here's one of my Bibles that I had from high school. I can't smell it anymore because it will fall apart on me. In fact, I would use it so much like this in high school that my thumb wore out the leather here. The New Testament has fallen apart because I'd go around to every classroom sharing the good news of Jesus. This, when I first got it, I sniffed it and it smelled good. Or as one of the prophets in the Old Testament, your word is so good, I ate it. Well, he didn't actually eat it. But this is precious, right? I even keep it in the box here. It's the old King James. Anybody grew up with a King James Bible? Okay. Even Andre, wow, the youngsters here, right? Okay. Let me begin, even though you're at Mark 16, let me begin and I'll pray reading from Psalm 19. The first part talks about the beauty of God's great creation. It speaks of its glory. This natural revelation that God has given us throughout creation. We see the beauty of God. But then, verse 7. Man, I said I wasn't going to cry, but this may make it happen here. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is Perfect, reviving the soul. Amen. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Then verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength, my rock, my redeemer. Amen. Amen. This is precious. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. It is faithful. It is true. It is so good for the soul. And for me, I know these past three weeks, there is no conceivable way I could have made it without your word. My fingers have been deep in these passages. You have sustained me by the beauty of your word. And I ask that you guide us this morning as we finish our series here in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to take a little bit more time, maybe a little different than most of our sermons. We're going to do a lot of study and we're going to dig into this. So guide us. 
This might answer a lot of questions we've had kind of pondering about our Bibles and how we've got them. So, Spirit, guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Amen. All right, so get your Bibles. Go to the end of Mark. Mark chapter 16, looking at verse 9. Now, if you notice in your Bibles, right before verse 9, unless you have an older King James like I grew up with, they don't have this, but notice that there's something there. For instance, it says, the most reliable and early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. How many of you have them in your Bibles? Just raise your hand so you see that, okay. So the earliest manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 20. So what is this about? Why do we even have this then if it's not in the original that we, we know of? Or if you recall, we, were, we dealt with this in Mark chapter 9, a textual issue where verses 44 and 46, if you quickly go to Mark chapter 9, verses 44 and 46 aren't even there. And I said they're the easiest verses to memorize in the Bible. In the best ancient, reliable, early manuscripts, there is no 44 and 46. Where did they go? And we saw there that this was a quote from the Old Testament, verse 48. And a scribe later inserted that quote with each of the other phrases before that to make it bring a more poetic flow to this. So what do we do with these issues? When you see something in Scripture, there's a note saying, hey, just so you know, this wasn't included. Or are there errors in the Bible? Or we can ask this question, can we truly trust the Bible? Yes, we can. So today we're going to answer these questions and do a little history on how we got our Bible. So I even thought about maybe putting pieces of paper in front of all of you so you can take notes. The, take notes if you can. These notes, again, these will be online for you this afternoon when we get our sermon up there. Those are available for you. We're going to do a little church history as we, I work through. i got a table full of stuff here. And much of this is called textual criticism. In fact, in grad school, where Tony and I went to, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, we did textual criticism. And I tell you, most of us students were like, this is so boring. But it's very important. In fact, as we do this, this is kind of like school today for you. So a little side note, as you have students, if you have children, and we're talking about school, we've got a slide here of some of the schools that we have available. And we're going to have a print. Of, I, just the last couple of weeks, I've been unable to. We're going to have just a paragraph for each of these schools. So we've got some schools around. We've got the Ascension Academy. And if you have in, interest in that, that is a Christian school that's in the Cumberland area. You can talk to John Peterson over there. Again, in a couple of weeks, we'll have phone numbers and, and paragraphs for you if you want to do that. If you're feeling like, you know what, I want to get my kids involved in a Christian school. Then we also have the CC, Class of Conversations, that meets here once a week. And Renee's the contact for that. If you homeschool, um, that can be a part of that. Or you can just be a part of the CC network that we have. And we also have Moving Mountains. And I think that's Elizabeth Bukestead is the person to contact 
connect with that. So we'll have information about that. Like for us, as parents, we homeschooled for a while, and then we realized for us, for our family, let's get our kids in the public school to be a light in that school. So there's many options that you have. Since we're talking about study and school, we'll have those for you in the next couple weeks. All right, so let's begin with one of the statements that we have. We have 10 statements in our statement of faith. Maranatha, we're part of the Evangelical Free Church of America, and we have 10 statements of what we believe in, what we believe about. So here's the one that's talking about the Bible. It's up here on the screen. It says this, We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors, as verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writing. So that's the first part of one of our statements. So what I want to do is I want to unpack that. How did we get our Bible? And we're going to talk a little bit about here Bible origins and content that we have within our scripture. So let me begin with this. The only way that we can know God isn't by our effort. It's how God reveals himself to us, okay? So the only way that we can know God is how God reveals himself to us. And he has chosen to reveal himself in very specific ways. God discloses things about himself that we could not understand, and he does it through what we would call general revelation and special revelation. General revelation would be stepping outside and seeing the beauty of creation and anyone that could see creation and set aside maybe some of their thoughts and just realize, God, all right, there's got to be a creator. This just did not happen. And we have a lot of passages that talk about that. But there's also special revelation where God reveals himself in a special way. And there's two primary ways that he has revealed himself. The two primary ways are the word of God and secondly, when the word of God took on flesh in Jesus, right? John chapter 1. So those are the two primary ways in which God's special revelation has revealed himself. The word of God And secondly, when the Word of God took on flesh. And this is not just a book. Yes, this is actual leather, and this is actual paper. It didn't come down from heaven. I don't need, like, special golden sunglasses to read this and understand that as some religions have in their religious books that are false. This is a book, but it's also divine. So let me talk a little bit about inspiration. The Bible has a divine element to it. So take your Bibles and let's go to 1 Timothy. Boy, my Bible pages don't flow as they used to. Sorry, 2 Timothy. Did I say 1 Timothy? Yeah, I got that, 1 Timothy. Sorry about that. 2 Timothy chapter Three. This is a passage that we have that we have our kids memorize in Awana and we had awards night. And I'm also proud of all the kids that memorize different verses and, and I encourage you kids and adults, memorize, memorize. I'll, I'll begin with verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. 
and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. And again, our church is all about this book. We want our kids to know this. This is a guide to them. So from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are, here's one of the main purposes of Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now to this famous, famous verse that we have. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped to do every good work. So the Holy Spirit guided the writers of the Bible to write down exactly what God wanted them to write down. So Scripture is God-breathed. So I'm going to do a weird illustration here. Let me run over here. So it's kind of like this. I'm going to lift this. Or God, oh, it's not, it's the screen's there. Okay, if you would breathe on glass... In Wisconsin, most of the time, it kind of frosts up because it's cold outside. You would see that moisture. It's God-breathed, but if I wrote happy, the word happy on there, you would notice that's my handwriting. I write in all capitals all the time, except when I write the Chicago Bears, the B is lowercase, but that's a different topic. It's God-breathed. It's got that divine element, but it also has a human element. Element. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is not just a divine element. There's also a human element. So each writer has their unique way of writing. If I wrote the word happy, I'd breathe on glass, you'd see happy, it would be all in capitals and just very simple. If Pastor Aaron wrote it, it might be different. It might have a little, you know, his style to it. So there's the human element to it. And this was not a dictation, but it was verbally inspired. As they wrote according to their own styles and personalities, while the Spirit influenced their choice, and his choice of words. God spoke spoke through the words of human authors. And this inspiration extends to the actual words. So actually, these are divine words that God, and all parts of the Bible, which are equally of divine origin and equally authoritative. So all of Scripture is god breathe. That's inspiration. Or another way of saying this is that the Bible is inerrant. That means without error. It has no errors in it. So back in the uh, early 80s, a committee of evangelical scholars got together. I think, I think it was even in the Chicagoland area. One of my professors, a couple of my professors were about a part of this, and they wrote a dash definition of inerrancy. It's up here. When all facts are known, let me just pause there. A lot of times if I talk to skeptics or people who don't trust this, they go, oh, how can you believe this book? You know, it's put together by a bunch of people and it's been changed so many times, kind of like the telephone game. I'm like, no, it's not like that. 
fact, I don't just blindly go, oh, this is the word of God and trust it completely in every word. This has been through the rigorous work of understanding, and we'll talk about the manuscripts. It's, we treat this as though you would treat any other ancient document to find out, is this truly real and trustworthy? So when all facts are known, through the study, through the manuscripts, through textual criticism, the scriptures in their original autograph, so each of the documents, when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, that is considered the original autograph, his original writing. So the original autographs, and properly interpreted, will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social or physical or life sciences. This here is totally true, period. One of the problems happens is when people go, well, there's <clears throat> a lot of errors, and look at the end of Mark chapter 16. We're not sure of that. So let's just say there's some errors in the Bible. When you begin to do that, that is very, very dangerous. So let's talk about the original autographs or the original writings and the interpretation of that. So the Bible has been written in two languages. I've got my books here. So this is my Hebrew Bible, okay? My Hebrew Bible doesn't start here. That's the end. Hebrew is written for us backwards, so it begins here. Here's Genesis, and it goes through. So here is my Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, Whereas the New Testament, here's mine, the UBS 4th edition, this is written in Greek. So those are the two languages that the Bible's written. There are some parts that are Aramaic, so that's what they spoke. God inspired both the writing and the writers of the original autographs. Though we don't have the original autographs today, the copies that we have are very accurate. Which, again, that's a whole different study. If you've got questions about that. Uh, if you, even today, you're like, I want to know. Here's formation of the Bible. Bible translations. One Bible, many versions. If you want to borrow these books, th these are great studies. We don't have the original autographs, the original writings. But what we have through study, through science, through church history, through what some of the church fathers quoted in the first and second centuries, we realize what we have through the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's a whole different topic of study. That verified. We pulled out these Dead Sea Scrolls and we're like, man, these magic, this is amazing. What we have is trustworthy. So let me as... Simplified as I can, this could be a whole hour's worth of study. Let me do this as quick as I can, give you an understanding of how we got our Bible. So in the first century, we have the original autographs that were written down, letters, or what we call books of the Bible. Those are written down to meet the needs of the early church. Paul saw that there's different cities that had different issues, theological questions. So he would address those issues. In Corinth, they had a lot of issues. There's a lot of sin and just embarrassing things. And so he's like, I need to write not just one, but two letters to you because you guys are way off the tracks here. Get back on to holiness and understanding what true worship is. Or Galatians, written to people saying, yeah, we're a bunch of Jewish people that are trusting Jesus. Now we got Gentiles. Well, they got to follow the Old Testament law. And he's like, no, I'm time out here. 
It's Jesus only. So these were written and then exchanged between the churches and read out loud. And soon copies were began to be made. And these defined, within the second century, these defined, this is what we believe as a church. Then in the third century, they were made into lists. Like, oh, you know what? Let's get these as gospels. We got the four gospels here, and then these are epistles. These are letters written to specific churches. And these were, written, these were kind of organized to help guide for faith and practice. Then in the fourth century, that's, this is kind of where we had some of the major councils that happened. The Council of Nicaea, some of these famous names that maybe you've heard of, these were put together. And they recognize these are the main books in the New Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. These are the divine revelation, thus bringing a close to the Bible. No more to be added, as we see in the book of Revelation. Don't add more books. So we have different, I would call them cults that are out there saying, you've got the Old Testament, then you've got the New Testament. Ah, but we've had a special prophet to add another book. When that happens, that's false, right? So that's kind of a quick summary of some of the church history of what we've got here. Well, how did we decide, how did they decide which book should be in the Bible, right? Because there's different Gospels of Thomas, different things. In fact, how many have heard of the Da Vinci Code before? That came out, I think it was in the 90s. Okay, that, that came out, an author, Dan Brown, who really hates the church, kind of wrote this very fictitious story, and he's got a couple after that, about how the church handled things and how they twisted things and and it's very interesting, just like my father-in-law wrote articles against him and just um, decoding the Da Vinci Code. One of his articles was in Christianity Today talking about how foolish it is. And I, I just, like, I finally sat with one of my daughters and we watched the movie Da Vinci Code, the first one. I'm like, you're old enough? And she laughed, even, even she's a teenager. She was like, that's totally false. They're, they're not even looking at the rest of church history. They're making stuff up. But how do we know which books to put in here? There was a criteria. Number one, it had to be written by an apostle or a close associate. It couldn't be written by someone in the third century going, oh, here's what actually happened. No, it had to be written actually by an apostle. Number two, it, the content had to be in accord with the rest of Scripture. It couldn't contradict the rest of Scripture. It had to be parallel to what Scripture teaches, the whole counsel of God. And third, it had to be used by the church since the time of its writing. And that's why, like, if you want to study this, I've got many books in my office that show some of the great writings of the early church fathers and how they used them. So our Bible is closed. It's our canon. The word canon means measuring rod. This is how far we go with the books in our Bible. This is the list of books within our Bible. So take your Bibles and go to the beginning of your Bible, and there's a table of contents. Take a look at that. Here's the books of the Bible. We've got 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. 
This is our list of books. This is our canon. It's closed. You can't add any more. Unlike the Roman Catholic Church, how many of you maybe grew up in the Roman Catholic Church or understand something? They have included within their Bibles, kind of between the Old and New Testament, the Apocrypha. Have you heard of that? So this is a list of books that they have included way after all these councils. They have included them to try to back up some of their theological theories, you could say, that I would say are false, such as purgatory and the worship of Mary or stuff like that. They have included the Apocrypha. We, as Protestants, would say those definitely are not inspired. Though they are actually historical written documents, they're not inspired. So that's a little bit about the original autographs and the interpretation of that. So let me now move to Bible translations. Right now I'm just unloading a lot of stuff for you here. Bible translations. Often I get asked as a pastor, what's the best translation to have? Early translations. Again, let me just give you a little history here. The er one of the earliest translations we have is the Vulgate. Have you heard of that? It was written in Latin. And that was popular. That was the Bible of the early church. In fact, some of you older than me might even, maybe were a part of the Catholic church where that's where they read Latin in their services. The Latin Vulgate was part of the early church. But here's the problem. Most people could not read Latin. That'd be like if I'd be quoting out of this Greek New Testament, I think there's only three of us in the room that could understand what I'm talking about. To you, you'd be like, that's Greek to me. Well, it's Greek to me also. But the problem is for centuries, no one could read the Bible unless you were learned, educated, wealthy. Then John Wycliffe in 1382, groundbreaking moment, for church history and translation. He translated the first Bible into English, but it was from the Vulgate. So there's a little problem there. The Vulgate was translated from the Greek and Hebrew. He's not going back to the original sources. He's translating from the Vulgate. So Wycliffe translated the first Bible into English. And I would encourage you, if you have a heart for missions, let me know. I'll let you know of a couple Wycliffe missionaries that we support because they're out translating in different areas and regions, letting people know of the Word of God. Then in 1526, William Tyndale, he translated the first Bible into English from the Hebrew and Greek. So you've got Wycliffe and then Tyndale. These are famous names that maybe you've heard of. Then, in 1611, you got the Reformation happening. Again, this kind of spiritual, cultural dissonance between the church and then Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all these guys started the Reformation. And out of that, the church kind of splintered off into different aspects where the Catholic church went one way and the Protestant church went another way. During that time in England, King James, 1611, he decided, let's get a Bible in English. 
as quick as we can. This is all happening fast. So the King James was put together very quickly, and it's called the Texas Receptus. I have, um, I have a copy of the Greek translation that they used. And what they did is they got this together quick, which isn't the best way to do. And so here's my example. What they did is they got the manuscripts, as many as they could. Here's two piles here. And they were like, okay, in this pile, which is a lot of manuscripts, these are just old sermon notes of mine and stuff. They're not actual manuscripts. Compared to this pile, they would say, okay, this verse here says it this way this many times, where this verse says it this way and is maybe, you know, missing a couple words. So we're going to go with the greatest amount. The most wins compared to the last, right? That's what King James did. But the problem was, these are the most earliest, most reliable manuscripts where these were centuries after, which I'll talk in a moment. Modern translations. Language changes often. And it's okay to say this. It'll be on the video here. What was gay 100 years ago is not gay today, right? That word has drastically changed. And it's interesting, in the school systems right now, language they say changes, our English, American language changes every 20 years. That's probably one reason why they keep making more textbooks, or maybe it's because they can make more money. Anyways, uh, so it changes all the time. For instance, in the King James, Jesus says, suffer the little children to come to me. How many of you want our little children to suffer? Not Right? Well, suffer meant something totally different in Shakespearean language. In fact, to understand the King James today, you have to have a college degree and understand language a little bit more. Let me give you an example here. One of my favorite ones I like to is Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15. Take a look at this. So in the King James, it says this. Drink waters out of thine own cistern. If I go to Awana and say, drink waters out of thy own cistern, I think maybe... Probably no, none of the kids would know. What's a cistern? My sister? What? <clears throat> How many know what a cistern is? A few of you, okay. Drink water out of thy own cistern and running waters out of thy own well, okay? You read that and go, okay, guess what? I can't go to my neighbor and ask for a glass of water. I got to stick with my own household and drink water there. That's basically what it's saying, right? But the NLT which is an amazing, great translation, says this. Drink water out of, or so not thine, I'm throwing the King James in there, sorry. Drink water from your own well. So a cistern is like a well, it contains water, it, it holds water. So now they've translated cistern to water so you can understand it. But then it says this, share your love only with your wife. That's completely different, right? The Hebrew word ahav is not in there, which is love. The Hebrew word isha is not there, which is for wife. You know, those words, are how, what, what right do they have to totally change the words? But notice, there's a little note there. C point D, I think it is, or alpha, or you know, there's A or whatever it is. See this note at the Bible, bottom of your Bibles. And they'll say, in the original, it says, drink water out of your own well. What the editors of the NLT realized is, oh, you know what? This was a Hebrew idiom. A Hebrew idiom is a phrase that we use that maybe in 50 years from now they don't understand. For instance, if I say, my wife is hot, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
It's not that she has a temperature. It's not that she just ate spicy food. She's aikaramba, hot. You're right, okay? That's, a Hebrew, that's an English idiom. And 100 years from now, they might be going, what, what does that mean? Running waters from thy own well. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you look at Proverbs chapter 5, if you even go to your Bibles right now, the heading of it is adultery. Stay away from adultery. That's saying, guess what? Don't go to your neighbor and get satisfaction from that wife. Stay true to your wife. Amen? Amen. Don't mess around. You should only get the life and satisfaction from your wife, not from your neighbor's wife. Share your love only with, with your wife. Don't be drinking over there. So words change. That's why we have different translations. This is very important to say, too. No translation explicitly translates every word. The meaning of every word must be translated. So here's what I recommend strongly. I would encourage you to get three translations when you study. I encourage you to get the ESV. The ESV is what we would call formal equivalence. They try to do word for, you can't do word for word. You just can't do that because meanings, just, you just can't do that. And if you've taken any language, you can't just do word for word. We have the interlinearity. That's the only word for word that we have. So the ESV tries its best to stick to the original, that word. But again, you can't always do that with phrases and stuff. And so the ESV is one of my favorites. In fact, some of my professors were editors of the ESV, and I've sat with them and talked to them about this. This is one of the greatest translations we've ever had. The next one is the NIV. That's what we have here at our church, the NIV. The ESV, sometimes, because they're trying to do as best as they can formally, word for word, it doesn't read as smoothly and as, it doesn't flow as well, where the NIV it, it does it a little bit better. It's easier to read and maybe understand and memorize. So the NIV is a great, great translation. In fact, currently right now, the president of the NIV Translation Committee is Douglas Moo. He's the guy that married my wife and I. So I know what their process, I know them, and I know their hearts for Scripture. Then I would say this. The second, or the third translation to have is the NLT. The NLT is a great translation. And these each, all of these have many members. Like the NLT, I believe, had 80 people on a committee to translate that from different denominations. But they're all like the brightest of the brightest in that area of Scripture and language. And I've, uh, because of my father-in-law, my father-in-law was the general editor of the New Testament and the Gospels, I got to sit with the committee for a day, just like a little mouse or a fly on the wall, and just watch them work through the translation. So I would encourage you, get those three translations. You can find those at a thrift store, I'm sure, but definitely get the ESV, the NIV, and the NLT. In fact, when I work on passages and memory, wow, the time is flying here. I pull all three of those out. At times, I love how the ESV translates it. And then at times, I realize, man, the NLT just nailed it there. Here's what William Mount says. That's that dictionary I pull up once in a while. And this is talking about, because he's been on the committees for the ESV and, and all and this, he says this. Translators have an extremely high regard for every word of Scripture. 
The difference is how they view the relationships between words and meanings. So can we trust the Bible? Yes, absolutely, we totally can. It's infallible. The Bible is completely trustworthy as a guide to salvation and life of faith and will not fail to accomplish its purpose. This is totally trustworthy. Even with all the original documents and all that stuff you want to say, that is totally trustworthy. Let me quickly go through the four characteristics of Scripture. It has authority. All the words are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. It has complete authority in our lives. Amen? Number two, clarity. The Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. Third, the necessity. The Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel message, for maintaining spiritual life and knowing God's will. You need this in your life every day. And then fourth, sufficient. All that God wanted to be known as special revelation was contained at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, trusting, and obeying him. Getting to the end here, let's finish our free church statement. It says this, the complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, I love this part. It is to believe in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Amen? I love that last sentence. In fact, if I were you, write that in the beginning of your Bible. You got that little blank spot here? Just put it right there. That's just a great phrase to have. Finally, let's get to our passage at hand. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. What do we do with this? Earlier manuscripts and ancient writings, they, they don't contain this. So again, when the original autographs or the original writings were written, Paul wrote it down, or Mark wrote this down, it was read. In fact, as we studied before, Mark was the first gospel we believe written. And then Matthew and Luke realized, we need to do the same thing. Let's write our account, our story of the gospel. And they wrote that, and then John also did, and his is a little different. Scribes and their copying process. Let me just talk a little bit about that. We have over, again, this is just my example, we have over 5,000 manuscripts of the Greek. It's awesome. We have over 5,000 manuscripts. Because, and each of them have a different symbol to determine which manuscript they're, they're using. So I think we have the pictures. Here's my Greek Bible. Here's Mark chapter 16. And on the bottom there is all this textual criticism. So I zoomed up on one of them there. So take a look at the next slide here. So the next slide here's, so verse 2. You got this Greek word here. This Greek word shows up in this. So each of the different manuscripts are called different things. There's Codex Sinaiticus, there's Codex Vaticanus, there's, they're different by different either Greek or Hebrew symbols or different letters and numbers. This is the copy of what we have. 
in the copying process, there were at times an omission or an addition that scribes would do. But there, we got to know this, there is no change in Bible theology, and often it was to harmonize or to bring clarity or a parallel passage or word or phrase that would repeat. So here's an example that I have for you. Ephesians chapter 1, so take a look at this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. So imagine the teacher's up front and you're all, I'm reading the manuscript to you, I'm reading the Greek to you, and I'm reading out of Ephesians chapter 1 and you're all the scribes writing it down because you're then going to get on a horse and take this to a different place, an area. So I'm reading, I'm dictating it to you, you're writing it down. So Hebrews chapter, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, right? So you do Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and what's the next book? Colossians. So they're still writing this all out. And then you've got this, Colossians chapter 1, 14. So this is in our modern translations. It says this, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What happened is one scribe was like, well, how do you get redemption? What does Ephesians 1, 7 say? through his blood. So it's interesting in the King James, Colossians chapter 1 verse 14 says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So one scribe added that, and in my opinion, unfortunately, that one got to be a popular one, and soon a lot of manuscripts had Colossians 1 14 saying, in his blood, which isn't theologically wrong at all, where the most closer to the original don't have that at all. Does that make sense? So the King James, so when, when the NIV came out, my dad was a diehard King James guy. That's just how I was brought up. And when the NIV came out, he called it the nasty, imperfect version. That was his little phrase for it. Because he's like, Cody, they took the blood of Jesus out of it. They are so wrong. And I was like, whoa, they took out the blood of Jesus. Well, they didn't. Because they went more, not like King James did, as quick as he could. They went to the more authentic, original documents, as close to the original, and found out that that phrase wasn't in there. So we have copies that are amazing, true to the source, made by fallible hands, put together. That's why I encourage you, those three, the ESV, NIV, and NLT, get those. There's some that I wouldn't call a translation, like the Message Bible, I wouldn't really call a translation, because it's one guy, and he, that's, I'll, I'll call that a paraphrase. Or there's a new one called the Passion, I don't know if there was even a committee that put that together. I wouldn't, I trust ones that are, like, again, the NLT was 80 scholars, 12 years working on it. It's trustworthy. It's not some empty academic exercise where they said, oh, well, let's just translate this. We believe that God protected his word, amen? So to Mark chapter 16, the longer version. In the second century, church fathers, Irenaeus, Justin, Martyr, they talked about these verses that we don't say was in the original. A few centuries after, scribes included it as the words, and they, so a couple centuries in the, I think it was in the fifth century, someone, one of the scribes said, this may not be part of the original from Mark's hand. 
So I align with many to say that this ending most likely is not from Mark's original hand. Two reasons why. The best and most reliable manuscripts, not the most popular and, and that which we have the most of, do not contain the longer ending, and that's like Codex Vaticanus, Codex, all the different, the, the most reliable ones we have don't contain that. Number two, it does not contain Mark's style of writing and use of words. Mark uses, like in the last, in the longer ending there, there's words that Mark never used in his gospel and are very different from Mark's style of writing. For instance, when you look at my sermon notes, they're very different from Pastor Tony's sermon notes. So many believe that that's not originally from Mark's hand. Whether it was or not, this is important, we lose nothing of our faith. Mark ends, I believe, at chapter 16, verse 8, and that's where Mark stopped. And it's the only gospel that doesn't talk about what happened after all this. The other gospels started talking about the post-resurrection. And I believe that, and then someone added, well, let's add to Mark so they're not just ending with, the women were afraid and they left. Let's tell more about the Great Commission. And most likely someone added, Mark 9 through 20, as a text, lacking the appearance of Jesus after the resurrection to make it look like the other three Gospels. Where's Jesus after this? And this passage here is a part of revivals and a great time to learn, as we did today, about the trustworthiness of this Bible. Amen? Let me end with this. Here is what we will end with. If you have the longer ending or not, Jesus still purchased our freedom. Amen? And yes, the tomb is still empty. And we can be certain of that. God's promises are true and faithful and trustworthy. And what we have here is a beautiful word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the word of God. It is faithful, it is true, it is good. (laughs) And maybe the next time I'm at a store, I'm going to sniff another Bible. Maybe late tonight when everyone else is sleeping, I'm going down to my little room where I study the Bible. I'm just going to soak in. It's sweeter than honey. It's more precious than gold. And your word is the final authority. May my will Give in to it. May I obey it. May I trust it. May I proclaim it from my lips. We are thankful for those who study your word, scholars who continue to defend the inerrant word of God, because there's many in evangelicalism that are just kind of throwing that to the side. We stand on your promises. You are faithful and true. And good. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and join us in our last few songs.